The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI's Chancellor's Professor of Philosophy, Jeff Barrett. His undergrad degree was in physics, and his recent book was about quantum mechanics, but before your head starts to explode with intimidation, I hear he's a gentle, kind, humble man, and it's my goal that we have a great time along the way discovering some of these areas that many of us don't typically delve into. So please welcome Professor Barrett. How are you today? Great, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. Super. Well, why don't we just start from the beginning? Where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? Two places um, I grew up. I was born in Utah. My father had started college, uh, but when I was born, he had to drop out and he got a job as a teller uh, in one of the local banks. And that um, led us on a trajectory. And I ended up, uh, when I was in sixth grade, we moved to Central California from a small town called Patterson. And it was fun. It was out in the country. It's gotten bigger up there uh, now. What's uh, it near, Jeff? So Patterson, it's become a town um, that's actually kind of a commuter town into the Bay Area. It's straight inland from San Francisco, about 60, 70 miles. And it's in the Central Valley. So it was, uh, its claim to fame when I was there was it was apricot capital of the world. And we had something like 4,000 residents. And that's what it was like. So when did you leave Patterson? So uh, my family uh, moved to Southern California about the time that I was headed off to college. And they ended up moving to Northridge, um, which is just Northern Los Angeles County. Uh, And my father was still in banking and was working for a place in Santa Monica. And I went to college. Uh, I was excited about uh, studying quantum mechanics and and physics generally. Um, At that time, I I was most excited about general relativity. And, yeah. um, and so my undergraduate degree uh, was, in, was in physics. Um, I went to work for an, as an engineer for a couple of years in Beverly, Massachusetts, and then uh, went back and got my PhD at Columbia University. So you must have been a good high school student. I wasn't that good. I wasn't very disciplined. <laughs> so I, I, I'm a first-generation student, and 
My parents were very keen on education, especially my father. He subscribed to uh, Reader's Digest Great Books series where they'd send a new book to the house every month. And he got a world book encyclopedia and had it in the house. And so I was in an environment that valued learning. But as far as what it was like to go to college, uh, my parents didn't know much about that. And at that time in California, you could take the high school equivalency exam if you were a junior in high school, um, or I believe if you were 16 years old. I'd skipped a couple of grades um, because we're out in a farming community. And so I was 14 and I took the high school equivalency exam and passed it um, because it's, you know, it was just basic skills. And so there was really a puzzle, you know, what are we going to do next? And so I started college at a junior college in California, and I loved it. And I worked my way through college from there. It, it took me six years to graduate from college because I had no idea what I was doing. And you were studying, well, physics, right? So, you know, physics is not, isn't that the hardest thing you can study? You must have been... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm hearing skipped a couple of grades studying physics. Uh, so I, I was good at some things. So being a good student is something that I learned later on. Um, and actually, I learned to be a good student when I met my wife, who was a very good student and still is. Uh, she went back to school recently and, um, and is working on a master's degree in uh, education, uh, mathematics education for elementary school students. But I, I just wasn't disciplined. You know, I could see the answer to questions sometimes, and I would just jump to the answer, uh, and I wasn't careful. And this is something, this discipline and care is, is something that I've had to focus on. So when did you start to key in on physics? Was that during college? And- uh, yeah, so it, it was actually um, very early on. I you know, I had a chemistry set when I was a kid. I liked to mix together explosives and, and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, we lived out in the country, and so you could do that. And and the neighbors um, were were some distance away. And so uh, there really wasn't a problem. But I, I got excited about science first, um, yeah. science and mathematics. And then I discovered, wait, you know, chemistry is not really the most fundamental thing. I really want to learn how the universe works. Um, I'm going to need to learn um, how physics works. Yeah. And so it, it was really my sense that I could learn things. Um, I had that sense. And that you could figure out the truth about how the world works. And I wanted to know it. And uh, so that's what, that's what led me to physics. That's also what led me to uh, philosophy later on, is that my experience in physics, I thought, wait a second, it, it's not entirely clear that we're getting the whole truth and nothing but the truth here. And that's why I went off and got the PhD in, in philosophy later. Where did you go to school for your undergrad? So I started at um, Modesto Junior College um, up in the Central Valley. And then I transferred to Brigham Young University. My family is Mormon. And I'd been at Modesto Junior College for a couple of years. And so I was just getting my driver's license that summer. I was 16 years old. And my dad thought, you know, this is, that's where he had um, started college uh, before he dropped out. And he thought this is a good, safe place. And we'll send our 16-year-old son uh, to Provo, Utah. And there were some things I liked about that um, and some things I didn't like about it. And, and this was actually part of what pushed me towards philosophy, I think. 
being in a religious environment and being naturally skeptical and wanting to know how the world worked, um, I found myself in arguments and discussions and late night conversations. And that made me wonder, you know, how do you figure out the truth about stuff in the world and, and religious truth and eth decide ethical questions? And, and so I finished up my undergraduate degree as an extension student at Harvard University. And so my undergraduate experience was spread from coast to coast and was pretty messy. But along the way, I managed to get a, a good GPA, good enough to get into a good graduate program. And I benefited from the standardized tests. I took the, the GRE and, and did well on it. I went down and we lived up in Boston because I just finished up the work at, at Harvard. And I got good letters of recommendation uh, for graduate school from the faculty at Harvard. And I went down to New York uh, to visit Columbia and met some of the faculty, got involved in conversations. And, and one thing led to another, and they, they welcomed me. And from there on, my educational trajectory was quite traditional. Can you give us a little bit more detail? What was it about physics, which I think in most people who don't know, in our minds, it's like, oh, well, physics answers many, many, many questions. But what was it that you're like, well, no, it doesn't answer this question? Or was there one or two questions that were, there's more, there's more than I'm in search of? I, I think it was, uh, it was learning the history of physics. Mm -hmm. So every, every generation has thought that they had the truth about the <laughs> physical world or that they were proximal to it. When Isaac Newton was working on his biggest project, uh, the Principia, where he wrote down the basic laws of physics, uh, and this is where Newton's law of gravitation comes from, and, and uh, his discovery uh, that planets move according to the same laws as objects on Earth, which was revolutionary. Edmund Halley wrote an, an ode to Newton, and it's included in the later editions of uh, Newton's Principia. And right, this is an ode to the author. And um, Halley, in his ode, he said, I'll paraphrase just briefly. He says, you know, dear fortunate reader, read herein those laws that God himself set not aside in the framing of the universe. Um, Halley thought that Newton had discovered the laws that God had used to structure the universe that God created. That's how certain um, he was that Newton had the truth. And it turns out Newtonian mechanics just doesn't work. It works for a lot of stuff. But when you get to relativistic phenomena involving strong gravitational fields or, or objects moving very fast, you get to quantum phenomena um, involving uh, objects that are well isolated from their environments. And uh, you get phenomena that would have completely baffled uh, Newton. And so it was the history of physics. I realized, no, you don't just learn the truths and then it's done. It's a process and you keep going. And it was also our current um, situation in physics. Our two best physical theories now, and as an undergraduate, I learned these and uh, learned how they related to each other and found it unsettling. But the two cornerstones of modern physics are special relativity and quantum mechanics, um, and these two theories don't fit together. And if we could put them together, it would be a theory we might refer to as a 
relativistic quantum field theory. I mean, it's been extraordinarily difficult because of two basic problems um, to write down a satisfactory relativistic quantum field theory. The two problems are, one of them is an issue of ingenuity. I don't know how that's going to turn out. It has to do with how we represent physical states. We just haven't gotten it right. And this is what string theory is about and questions of quantum gravity. And that's, that's a real puzzle. The other problem is even more difficult and more fundamental. It's called the quantum measurement problem. And as I got to understand these problems more clearly, I realized, hey, wait a second, we don't understand the physical world really at all. We can make great empirical predictions. Um, we have these theories that are exciting and suggestive, but in some sense, we're, we're not even close to the truth. And I can say that uh, concretely. These two theories, when you put them together, actually entail a logical contradiction. So it's not that they're weird, it's that they're false. But presumably they're close to the truth in some sense. But a contradiction in one sense is as far away from the truth as you can get. A logical contradiction can never be true um, any, in uh, any possible world. So it was the realization that the history of physics is one where we keep changing our minds about how to describe the world. There's a kind of progress, but it doesn't really look like progress towards the truth simpliciter. And then it was the realization that our current best physical theories are mutually incompatible with each other. Mm, wow. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I do a guest ID. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've just tuned in to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, you're listening to UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer. And my guest today is UCI Chancellor's Professor of Logic and Philosophy of Science, Jeff Barrett. And we're talking about his fascination and love of physics and quantum theory and philosophy. And we're delving in the rub right now. <laughs> so where are we looking at these issues at UCI or is, it, is this being done someplace else or is it being done all over the world? Uh, a lot of, right. When I was, when I was younger, um, there was, uh, a lot of folks who worked in physics, they knew that Einstein, for example, didn't like quantum mechanics. And they knew that Einstein and Bohr had argued over how quantum mechanics works. And some people knew that Schrodinger, um, who won the Nobel Prize uh, for his work in quantum mechanics, didn't really like the theory. And in fact, Schrodinger uh, famously said um, that he wished he had nothing to do with the theory. Right? And this is the, this is the theory that um, got him a Nobel Prize. Wow. And so they knew that there were these discontents around, um, but most people in physics didn't know why these folks didn't like quantum mechanics. And I, I think the party line was something like this. People who don't like quantum mechanics, they find it counterintuitive. It's too weird for them. They just need to grow up and, and realize the world's a weird place. The world is a weird place. So that's right. But that's not why um, folks were upset about quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics, the reason that Einstein was upset about quantum mechanics is that he could see that quantum mechanics didn't mesh with special relativity. Uh, he thought that, and special relativity was, uh, was um, his greatest achievement as a physicist. And he saw the tension between the two theories. He was never able to put his finger on precisely why the two theories are logically inconsistent with each other. And one of the reasons he wasn't is that um, Bohr was very quick on his feet and and would keep changing the target um, in their debates. 
so when I was younger, folks didn't really understand what the quantum measurement problem was and why this, this was a threat uh, to modern physics. That started to dawn on people, the rank and file of, uh, of working um, physicists, especially uh, theoretical physicists, in the 1980s and later. And so the timing of that worked very well for me. I was a, I was a graduate student in the mid, PhD student in the mid-1980s to the early 1990s. And my dissertation advisor, David Albert, was a physicist by training and had defected uh, to uh, um, the philosophy department at uh, Columbia University um, because he wanted to think about these issues. And you really couldn't think about this stuff in the physics department at that time still. Now, there are uh, PhD students in physics uh, who work on the quantum measurement problem. And they investigate the properties of alternative formulations of quantum mechanics. Here's the, here's the very short story. Since the standard formulation of quantum mechanics ha has an internal inconsistency or empirical incompleteness to it, people have tried to fix it by making it a complete and logically consistent theory. And when you do that, you create a new theory. And here are some names of those other theories. One of the most discussed is called Bohmian mechanics. Um, another one is called uh, GRW, after uh, the three people who wrote it down, Gerardi, Ramini, and Weber. Another one of these is the many worlds um, interpretation of quantum mechanics. And these are attempts to write down a consistent formulation of quantum mechanics, and hopefully one that's compatible with relativity. But that second thing is extraordinarily difficult to achieve. You can get rid of the inconsistency. It doesn't feel right. It usually looks clunky. It doesn't feel right. But it's very difficult to write down a, a complete formulation of quantum mechanics that describes the measurement process, describes it consistently, and is compatible with the dynamical constraints of, of relativity. Wow, Professor I will name drop here. What did Stephen Hawking say to what you're talking about? Br briefly. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> so, I would assume that he looked at this. So the, the most famous thing from my perspective that Stephen Hawking did was he showed how to put general relativity, not special relativity, but he showed how to put general relativity together with quantum mechanics in a really special context. He showed how to describe the um, region around a black hole using the tools from general relativity and from quantum mechanics. Now, he didn't get a complete and consistent theory of uh, what happens around a black hole. That would require something that we would call a theory of quantum gravity. He didn't do this. He used some bits and pieces of the two theories to make predictions for what would happen in that region. And he showed the, that a black hole would evaporate um, over time and phenomena like that. When you put the two theories together, relativity and quantum mechanics, you're going to get novel predictions and they're going to be exciting and interesting and compelling. And that's what uh, Hawking's work was about from my perspective. But we still don't know how to do that in a complete and consistent way. Gotcha. Professor, how many philosophy professors do we have at UCI? Uh, so we have two departments of people who do philosophy. There's the department called philosophy. And I believe that there are something like a dozen faculty there. And then we have a department called logic and philosophy of science. I'm a member of both departments, but my main appointment is in the department of logic and philosophy of science. Yeah. 
So, which brings up the question, there is just a simple department of philosophy. What is the distinction for the department of logic and philosophy of science? And maybe that's what we've been talking about this whole time. Well, we have, we have. So a lot of people who I talk with, you know, we talk for a while and they think that I'm a physicist and I am working on um, issues that are of interest uh, to to both philosophers um, and uh, people who do theoretical physics. What uh, people in logic and philosophy of science do is they use the tools of philosophical analysis, giving careful arguments, making um, careful distinctions and such, and apply those uh, to problems that come up in the natural sciences and in, and in logic and in mathematics. So that's, that's the main difference. Um, there, are people over in, there are people in the philosophy department who are interested in in natural science and social sciences as well. But uh, everybody uh, who's in the Department of Logic and Philosophy philosophy of Science is interested in doing work um, that helps to explain what it is that we're doing when we, when we do science, when we do physics um, mm-hmm. or biology or economics. Mm-hmm. How many professors are in that department? I think we're at 11 right now. And as an undergrad student, and uh, actually, so it may be the uh, logic and philosophy of science is unique um, at UC Irvine, uh, that it's, it may be the only department that doesn't have an undergraduate major. So philosophy does have an undergraduate major, and uh, students in the philosophy department will take courses from us. But it's impossible right now at UC Irvine to major in logic and philosophy of science. And is that a common department at other major universities in the philosophy or you know, to have a distinction between the two areas? No, no. Usually uh, the people, people who do philosophy of um, physics or philosophy of mathematics will be in a philosophy department. Uh, we just had the opportunity here because we had, uh, um, I was hired into the philosophy department here uh, many years ago, but we ended up with a critical mass of folks who did foundational work in the sciences and so we thought, well, why don't we put those people together as a department and uh, grow that department and, and develop? And it's, it's been uh, very successful. There are a number of places where PhD programs are ranked. Um, and in philosophy, um, PhD programs, uh, the main place is uh, something called the Philosophical Gourmet um, ranking of uh, philosophy PhD programs. <laughs> and um, UC Irvine um, is... Uh, on philosophy of science, uh, philosophy of physics, decision theory, game theory, rational choice, we're routinely ranked first, second, third in the world. For general philosophy of science, our main competition worldwide uh, for the PhD program is Oxford University um, and and curiously, uh, University of Pittsburgh. So this is something that at UC Irvine, we do extraordinarily well. And the students who come out of our PhD program typically do very well. Um, They end up at uh, places like uh, Carnegie Mellon, uh, Harvard University, um, and other other places. Outstanding. Do you have a philosophy hero? (laughs) Philosophy hero. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm interested to hear your response to that question. (laughs) (laughs) So, I, you know, you get influenced by a lot of people. Uh, yeah. Typically, when you're a PhD student, you're influenced by uh, your dissertation advisor. Um, and 
and my dissertation advisor is a very, very smart uh, guy who still teaches at, uh, at Columbia um, uh, University, uh, David Albert. And, um, you know, I was just back. Uh, we had a conference in honor of um, his 65th uh, um, birthday uh, this last year. And it was fun to, to see everybody there. And, I, and it reminded me of how indebted I am to, to his work and, and mentorship. More broadly, uh, I this is a long story, and I'll condense it way down. My work is on the philosophical side is probably most influenced by a group of philosophers um, known as the American pragmatists. These are people like C.S. Peirce, who was at Harvard University in the late 1800s and, and early 1900s, and uh, and then was unable to hold down a job and, and moved around. Um, and then people like Aquine. Uh, who was also at Harvard. And then we have people who've made real contributions to the pragmatic tradition here. Um, one of my good friends um, and somebody uh, who has been very influential on, on my views of how to do good work in philosophy and foundations of physics is Brian Skirms. He teaches here at uh, UC Irvine and is, uh, is one of the most distinguished faculty um, in the University of California. How do you look at some of the, the Greeks... Aristotle, was he one of the, the first founding fathers, or how do you look at him? So the, the Greek philosophers, the main way I, I consume Greek philosophy is uh, I listen to it on Audible these days, uh, on audiobooks. So I am a cyclist, and I love spending time. This is a great place to, to ride. Um, we have uh, the PCH. Um, we have great hills to cycle in. So I will put on Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean Ethics on my phone as an audiobook, and I'll listen to it while I'm riding my bike up around Santiago Canyon Road. And 45 miles later, and you know, I've I've had a chance to listen to uh, two and a half, three hours of of Aristotle. So I consume Greek and Latin, uh, people like uh, Cicero, the classics, both the literature and the philosophical classics. Um, I consume these for recreation these days. Sometimes I'll use this in a class, but I, I just enjoy uh, reading this stuff and then listening to it being read. Let me just uh, refresh our audience again, Professor. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, and my special guest today is UCI Department of Logic and Philosophy Science, Jeff Barrett. And we're just discovering, discussing his passion, love of philosophy, physics, and cycling. Cycling. Sometimes I think I work a paying job in order to ride my bike. (laughs) (laughs) But it's all, from my perspective, it's all part of the package. When I'm putting together lectures for a course, I'll jump on the bike uh, and ride along the PCH up to Huntington Beach, turn around to uh, Huntington Pier and ride back. And, and by the time I'm back, I'm ready to write down the, the notes for the lecture. I'll do something like that if I run into a problem while I'm working on a research paper. And so it's, it's nice to have something that you can do um, that gets you out, gets sunshine, um, fresh air, and then also complements your work. Um, and that's one of the things that, uh, um, that I found with uh, cycling. Um, there are other great activities around here, hiking, uh, going down to the beach. That's one of the real pleasures of academic lifestyle. You're always thinking about your stuff. You're always 
trying to work through the arguments and and figure out what did I do wrong here? How do I make the next step in this context? What do I tell my students about the research papers that they're working on? But uh, you get to ask yourself those questions and, and puzzle over them while you're riding your biking or walking down on the sand of the beach. Yes. Sometimes. Right. Wonderful. Do you have a a particular one or two just glorious teaching moments that that just always stick in your mind that's just a... <laughs> I I don't know. I so you know crazy stuff happens when when you teach. I I've had uh, situations where we've had fires around here and and you know a student will uh, just you know in, fires behind university hills and around the university right. and you're teaching a lecture and a student opens the door and smoke just pours into the room on the ash <laughs> one of my memorable uh, teaching lectures oh. from my perspective was i have two sons they're both graduated from college now the younger of the two uh, recently graduated and is living up in portland my older son uh, his name's uh, thomas when he was young uh, he was high maintenance and so I remember getting ready to go down and teach uh, on campus. I was feeding him. He was taking a bottle of milk, and I was feeding him. And I put him up on my shoulder, and I was patting his back to burp him before I got down to lecture. And I jumped on my bike, and I rushed down to lecture. And I was teaching logic, and, and I'm writing on the, on the board. And um, while I'm writing on the board with one hand, I turned uh, to look over my shoulder um, at the students to make sure they were following uh, the logical argument that I was giving, uh, formal, formal notation. And as I looked over my shoulder, there was um, spit up uh, milk all the way down my shoulder and down my back. And uh, I knew what it was. I don't know if the students knew what it was. But when you're just starting off teaching, you're juggling family and you're trying to make your schedule work. That kind of thing is pretty routine. Um, I, another memorable thing for me, and this is a generic category, um, I love uh, to see what's happened with my students uh, after you know they go off and they follow their own trajectories. Um, and I, I get to hear back from them from time to time. Uh, and this is something that you get at the university level. It's, it's harder to get this. You know, if you're an elementary school teacher, for example, you're, you just kind of lose track of your students very often. Mm-hmm. But I, I often get to hear back from my students and it's fun to, to see their successes and uh, where they end up. Is it most of the time in something different than philosophy or do you find yeah, that almost yeah. always there aren't that many jobs in philosophy it's great if, if people can pay you to sit around and think or ride your bicycle around and think so our phd students of course end up as um, very often end up as faculty i'm at other universities uh, i'm doing philosophical work or in an economics department or statistics department or something like that or a math department but uh, the undergrads who study philosophy very often end up going uh, to law school or mm-hmm. business school or maybe a, another kind of graduate program. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I get to see those students later. Um, one person I, I know that you uh, know, David Niffen. Mm-hmm. David uh, is the uh, volleyball coach here on the UC Irvine. has been very successful. He was a student of mine as an undergraduate, and he studied philosophy. You know, I still remember him in class. And he was playing volleyball then, of course, and right. for UC Irvine. He went off and was a coach and, and traveled the world, and our paths didn't cross until he came back to coach at UCI. And that was super fun to catch with, up with him on, on his trajectory 
one way we caught up is uh, the two of us jumped on bicycles and just rode down to San Diego and <laughs> talked on the way down. That's wild. Just, just a little jaunt down to San Diego. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. So here's what the conversation was like, um, Kevin. I, you know, we were talking about cycling. And I love to ride a bike. And, and I said, yeah, you know, sometimes I just get on my bike and ride someplace like San Diego. And, and David said, uh, I'm up for that. And I said, <laughs> I really? I totally see him saying that. <laughs> and he said, yeah. When do you want to do it? <laughs> and, you know, we're busy doing our things. And so it took a little while to coordinate. But yeah, we just got on the bicycles and, and started pedaling. It's, you know, a few thousand pedals. <laughs> Maybe it's a hundred thousand pedals or so later. You're sitting in La Jolla and you're um, having some coffee at a cafe. <laughs> it seems like conversations of philosophy... Um, coffee seems to uh, <laughs> be part of that because I actually emailed Coach Niffin before this interview just to say, hey, you know, any tidbits or whatever. And, and he says, one thing I totally remember is during a lecture, Professor, having a cup of coffee, just, oh, just a moment, because the coffee I sense is the perfect temperature. You know, there is a, <laughs> there is a perfect temperature for coffee, and I think it's right now, and you just savored that simple. <laughs> and David says, to, the, to this day, I remember that moment. It was like a perfect moment in teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Technically, I, I don't think you're supposed to waste uh, the entire class's time uh, while, you, <laughs> while you savor your coffee at a perfect temperature. But yeah, he's right. There is a perfect temperature <laughs> and uh, you don't want to miss that. Excellent. Excellent. Professor, how many books have you written? I, I know you had, last year you had a book released. Have you written more than one book? Yeah, so I have three books. Uh, one of them is, so the, uh, two of them are with Oxford University Press. Uh, the first one with Oxford was um, back uh, uh, 1999, 2000. It's, it's a book called uh, Quantum Mechanics of Minds and Worlds. And then I wrote a book with Princeton University Press um, where uh, Peter Byrne, who's an investigative journalist, uh, Peter had found some documents that were written by um, a, a very famous uh, physicist in Foundations of Quantum Mechanics, somebody named uh, Hugh Everett uh, III. And so Peter wanted some help putting those together. And so uh, we, we put those papers together. I got some NSF money. We put the papers together into a book, commentary uh, about Everett's work. Everett's the guy who's, who he's famous for inventing something called many worlds. Um, interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, and so I wrote uh, that book. It's the definitive collection of papers on many worlds, um, interpretation of quantum mechanics, uh, and it came out with Princeton. Uh, the, then the recent book is the third one with Oxford on uh, conceptual foundations of quantum mechanics. Tell us, what was your drive to do this most recent book, Conceptual so, Foundations of Quantum Mechanics? Yeah, so this is, uh, there are two courses I've been teaching on campus um, for some years. One is an undergraduate honors course on quantum mechanics, and it has no prerequisites. The honors students show up, and I just, from nothing, or something like high school algebra, I try to explain exactly how quantum mechanics works, and um, what the quantum measurement problem is, and what we're doing to, to try to address it. And the other course that I teach is a graduate seminar. So this is for PhD students who are going to be doing research, uh, possibly uh, for the rest of their lives on uh, quantum mechanics and how it works. And so I thought, well, I have notes from those two classes. Maybe I could just put the notes together and call it a book. 
And so I got in touch with the editors at Oxford and bounced the idea off of them and they liked the idea. And so I thought this will be easy. I'll just put the notes together. Um, it turned out that I just rewrote everything uh, from scratch so that it would fit together. And and so that's where that came from. I'm pretty proud of it. Overall, I'm pleased with it. It, it captures much of the content of uh, two of my favorite courses that I teach. And, you know, Professor, you, even when I read the preface, um, boy, is it, you know, every every half sentence is is packed full of, of, <laughs> I hate to be big words and and, <laughs> big and, words. Con- and concepts. I, you know, is it is it like you know if you can't get through the preface that may, it's maybe not. You know, I'm extremely interested, but I'm like, man, uh, <laughs> I so, just here. just to, yeah. just to give a a little insight on my honeymoon in the Virgin Islands. I actually read Stephen Hawking's. Uh, famous brief history of time book and yeah. I was really interested but I didn't really understand you know I could I could get I was like oh I, I see things in life that he's talking about but yet <laughs> it was it was tough go yeah this is this is more technical than uh, than Hawking's book but I, I I'm kind of proud of it because I I, I do think um, that it's something that you know if, if somebody is comfortable with high school mathematics. There are big words in it. Some of those you just kind of have to gloss over. I, I didn't put the big words in because they were big. I put them in because they said what I wanted to say. Yeah, in exactly. Place. But it, so it starts, it actually, the preface uh, really isn't part of the book. It's just, you know, thanking the people and, and all of that. When the book itself gets going, I just try to say, you know, here's, what it means to talk about a quantum mechanical system. The entire universe is a quantum mechanical system. Here's how we talk about it. And it turns out you can wave your hands at it and you can say mystical things. But if you want to say precisely what a quantum mechanical system is and how we talk about it and how quantum mechanics works, uh, you have to do a little bit of mathematics. Um, That's the price you have to pay. But it's not as much math as one might think. Mm. And you get a huge payoff from it um, because you're able to talk with absolute clarity about the subject. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest is logic and philosophy of science professor Jeff Barrett. Professor Barrett now gives us a simplified example of quantum mechanics. You have to hear this. It will absolutely blow your mind. Here we go. You know, as we've been talking about this topic, is is it literally quantum mechanics? Is is that what I want to say? Is that the holy grail? Is that is that where the questions and answers lie? Yeah, we know the world's quantum mechanical. We so um, this would be a long story, um, yeah. and and you know, I've already felt bad because some of my answers have, have taken three minutes. Um, This is a longer story. Will this help at all? This one sentence in the preface really struck me. The world is so deeply counterintuitive that one cannot trust even one's most cherished intuitions is one of the philosophical lessons of quantum mechanics. And I was was like, wow, really? Can you briefly tell us what is counterintuitive? Can you give us an example? Yeah, well, that's the thing that to really talk about it clearly would take a little bit of setup. 
I can gesture towards it. So in quantum mechanics, there are two new ideas in quantum mechanics, two basic new ideas for organizing how we think about the world. One of these ideas is um, the idea of a superposition. The other idea is the idea of entanglement. And if you've been thinking about the world using common sense and classical physics and all of that, you have not been thinking of the world in light of these two ideas. These are ideas that are so subtle, so counterintuitive, that it actually helps to have a little bit of mathematics in order to say what it means to be in a superposition of states and what it means to be in an entangled state. But I'll try to use just a little bit of English uh, language to describe this briefly. So in quantum mechanics, an object might be in my front room, or it might be in my backyard, or it might be in a superposition of being in my front room and in my backyard. Now, being in my front room, no, that's not puzzling. It's just an object in my front room. Being in my backyard, that's not puzzling. It's just an object in my, in my backyard. Mm. But being in a superposition of being in my front room and in my backyard, that's a completely different category. It's something that is unlike anything that one has come across that meshes with common sense, everyday intuitions. If my favorite chair is in a superposition of being in my front room and in my backyard, it's not in my front room. It's not in my backyard. It's not somehow in both places, but it's also not in neither place either. This is just a completely different um, logical category. And so that's where the mathematics comes in. The math tells you exactly what the properties of a superposition are. And then you can start to get your head around it. And then it becomes something that informs your intuitions. So as I mentioned earlier, I actually went to think about philosophy um, in order to, to learn some stuff that I hadn't learned in physics. These days, it's the physics that tells me about the philosophy. And here's the concrete thing. Philosophers like to trust their intuitions about how the world works. What quantum mechanics teaches us is you cannot trust your intuitions about how the world works. We don't know exactly how the world works, but we do know this. We know that the world does not work the way we intuitively think the world works. Our basic common sense and philosophical intuitions are simply false about the world we inhabit. And that's a big lesson. It means we have to go out and we have to kick stuff around and we have to investigate the world carefully and without prejudice insofar as we can, because we can't pull the covers up over our heads as philosophers like Descartes thought and um, imagine how the world must be and reach conclusions. The world is nothing like what one might have thought pre-theoretically. Wow. Is this universally accepted or is it, yeah, that this is the state of, of science and philosophy that it's not what we think it is? Yes. In order to explain what happens in experiments that we can perform in the laboratory, we have to violate basic um, common sense um, and philosophical intuitions. These are intuitions about what it means to be an object, intuitions about how one thing causes another thing to happen. These are really basic things, as basic as what I was saying before, right? You have to allow for the possibility of an object like a chair being not in one place, not in another place, not in both places, and not in neither place, right? That exhausts all the usual logical categories right there. Mm. 
But a superposition is none of those um, standard logical categories. In order for me to say what a superposition is, that's the thing that would be the longer story. And this is entirely uncontentious among physicists, what the mathematics tells us about the structure of superpositions. They don't have a logical structure. They have a geometric structure. And that geometric structure is represented in something called a vector space. All of that is stuff you have to learn um, in order to understand how quantum mechanics works. The stuff we were talking about earlier on the quantum measurement problem is even after you learn how quantum mechanics represents physical states, the physical world, there's still some problems. That's the part that's contentious, is how to solve those extra problems. That cluster of problems is called collectively the quantum measurement problem. That's contentious. The fact that our intuition is, is wrong about the physical world, that's entirely uncontentious. Um, everybody who has seen uh, the experimental results of tunneling experiments, quantum interference experiments, Stern-Gerlach experiments, etc., knows that our intuitions about how the world works can't be right. I mean, this includes EPR experiments, the kind of thing that Einstein worrying about. It turns out Einstein's, Einstein's intuitions about the world, even Einstein's intuitions about the world, were radically wrong. And we know that from quantum mechanics. Now, where Einstein did seem to get things right was there's something wrong with quantum mechanics, but it's not that it's making the wrong predictions. It's that it's not entirely complete. There's still some tuning to do. And that tuning um, is going to be non-trivial. As we wind up our interview, this has shed a lot of light. And and I think if anybody's interested, it's it's definitely perked their interest. (laughs) How about on a personal level, in terms of your career and and that you dealt with a lot of issues, in terms of adversity, you know, everybody has adversity. Can you give us an example of an adversity that you've had to overcome? Does anything come to mind? I've been lucky, and there are many ways that I'm privileged. But one of the ways that I was lucky is that, you know, coming from a background uh, where, you know, my parents, none of my relatives knew about how higher education worked. They didn't know how college worked and how to be successful. Um, I was lucky in, um, in finding a, a path through that and uh, meeting people along the way. Uh, who could act as mentors um, and who appreciated my interests and, and what I brought to the table. I, I, I think of myself as lucky. And, and that luck uh, all the way along is paved by uh, the folks I've met. And here at UC Irvine, that's one of the things that makes this a great place. We have a sense of community. It's a bunch of smart people, uh, students we care about. Uh, and, um, and it's one of the reasons I, I've uh, very much enjoyed being here. That's fantastic. How long have you been at UCI? Uh, since 92. Um, so I, my first job out of uh, graduate school from Columbia was here. Wow. And in the meantime, I've, you know, I've spent time on sabbatical at our big uh, competitor place at uh, University of Pittsburgh. And then I spent time in Germany and time in Austria on sabbatical leave. But yeah, except for sabbatical time, I've been here since 92. Well, fantastic. And any plans for the future? I need to take some more sabbatical time. I've built up uh, too much of it. And this year, I can't take any sabbatical time because I'm uh, chair of the academic senate. And so that's a bunch of meetings. Um, and especially during the pandemic, we have our hands full. But everybody's been working very hard on campus, the administration, uh, the faculty, um, the students have been great. 
as I go down to my office and, and see the students there, they seem to be doing what they need to do to keep the risk down. These are wild times. I can't take sabbatical this year. Uh, I'm hoping uh, that I'll be able to carve out a little bit for next year. Professor Jeff Barrett, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Kevin, it's entirely my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you again to Logic and Philosophy of Science Chancellor's Professor Jeff Barrett for taking us on that wild ride of the philosophy of quantum mechanics. The world is not what it seems. It is not linear, and there is still so much to learn about it. Much appreciation for Professor Barrett's insights and his easygoing attitude with our basic questions. Kudos. Kudos also to Piano Man Fred Kaplan for my great show theme music from his wonderfully rhythmic blue CD signifying. I dig the groove. Now coming up next at 5 p.m. is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, where Ash talks with business professionals about solving today's common business problems. Stay tuned. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. I can always be reached at my email at kboss at KUCI.org. To hear this show or any other encore edition of UCI Conversations, simply go to my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. That's www.bossenmeyer.com. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Stay safe, keep socially distancing, wear your mask, and vote and make it count. Happy trails. So long, everybody.